This is Shuffle, your backstage pass to Northeast Ohio's music scene. I'm Brittany Nader. In the mid to late 1990s, the independent Cleveland music venue Speak in Tongues served as a hub for both local underground musicians and artists and big name touring bands. It was operated by a community of people who both worked and lived there. For this week's Shuffle, I talked with local journalist Eric Sandy about his new book, Speak in Tongues, an oral history of Cleveland's infamous DIY punk venue. Not much is left of Speak in Tongues, except for the memories of people who attended some of the more than 2,000 shows. Archival footage and photos have been shared online, including this video from a 1999 concert of popular rock band Modest Mouse. Eric Sandy says its legacy lives on today as a key piece of Northeast Ohio's music history. It was sort of on the fringes, or very much so on the fringes, of the Cleveland arts scene in the mid to late 90s. But the context of, of what was happening at this little club has really filtered out over the years. Speaking Tongues doesn't really exist as, as it did these days in Cleveland, but the ethos or the creative intent of that club can be found all over the city and really all over the region and certainly in in other parts of the U.S. as well. It promoted a lot of local acts and some of whom are still performing in Cleveland or, you know, some of those folks have gone on to form other bands or or do different things with the arts. Uh, You know, there's there's national bands, there's, there's some bigger names like that in the oral history, but there's a lot of folks who are just, you know, working at places in Cleveland still or running their own venues or booking their own shows or performing on stage still you know, relatively household names on a local level, for sure. And when you say it's like a distinctly Cleveland place, what does that mean to you? You fall into a lot of like Rust Belt cliches, unfortunately, but, you know, this is Lorraine Avenue and West 44th Street. It's it's caddy corner from a Sunoco gas station, which was there in the 90s, and it plays a role in the Speaking Tongues story to an extent. But now the Speaking Tongues vil- building is uh, a sandwich place and I think like a, a beauty slash like waxing studio. This wasn't the Lorraine Avenue that we might know today. This was fairly desolate part of the near west side, even though it's just a stone's throw from, you know, Jacob's Field was just going up that summer, uh, Progressive Field, we call it now. Um, but just down in the West 40s, this was, uh, you know, a rougher part of Cleveland, I guess I would say, than than what it looks like now. And so Speaking Tongues kind of had that post-industrial, off-the-beaten-path, in-the-city, and yet still welcoming to, to a lot of suburban kids kind of feel. That general welcoming spirit, to me, is very tied to what it means to live in Cleveland or to participate in the arts in Cleveland. There's a chip on everyone's shoulder at Speaking Tongues, and that's certainly true for most Clevelanders these days. In the 90s, as the downtown core was really coming together and, and finding its identity around some of these new stadiums or the investments going into the Gateway District, certainly other little pockets of the city were trying to find out, you know, what's our identity going to be after the 70s and 80s, which had their own interesting music scenes. So what are the 90s going to bring? And, and to a point, the answer was kind of found in, in Speaking Tongues. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, seeing this roster of bands that went through Speak in Tongues, there are so many musicians who, like you said, went on to form these like national touring bands. So what what is it, um, aside from that welcoming spirit about that venue specifically that made people want to come there and play? 
You know, one of the things that I kept hearing is that the border between the stage and the audience or the performers and the audience was very porous. And this is not something that you're going to necessarily experience at most venues these days, a very unusual thing. And it might have been a bit more common years ago, but that was certainly one element of of what speaking tongues meant to a lot of performers and, and certainly audience members. A lot of folks who lived there and performed there described the fact that, yes, there was a stage there, but performances were happening throughout the entire venue and could you know, sort of spontaneously erupt in in weird corners or in the back hallway. And that spatial openness, in theory, uh, the performance opens up and bands are allowed to to do things that maybe they wouldn't have thought of back in the garage or in the studio even. You could almost say the full seven-year run of Speaking Tongues was itself a performance. And that's kind of like overly poetic, but I think it you know, from everyone I talked to, it was kind of true. In the end, what that means is, is Speaking Tongues functioned like a, a community gathering spot rather than a venue that um, strictly books bands and has, you know, a time when the doors open and lines are forming and, and the beer is extremely expensive. It's This was a much different thing. It was much closer to a house show, and yet it was in a commercial building to an extent. If you had to describe the place to someone who isn't entirely sure what like a DIY venue is like or like a performance art space or this kind of like very creative microcosm that's not corporate. Like what would you, how would you describe the place to someone? You know, one of the main things that, that people should understand is that there were people living at Speaking Tongues the entire time. And it kind of went through several waves of folks who came in and, and lived down in the basement of Speaking Tongues and put up little walls and created rooms for themselves. This was a venue. You could kind of find out what bands were coming if you were a curious suburbanite and you wanted to catch a particular band, much like you might at Beachland Ballroom these days. You know, there are ways of finding out who's coming to town. It's obviously easier with the internet. Um, But that's sort of only one aspect of it. Once you were there, you were, you know, finding your way into someone's home, into someone's community. One thing that I kept coming to in, in working on this, not only in 2016 when I started the project, but when I sort of revived it in 2021, is that a lot has changed uh, in the last 20 years. And I kept coming back to this in some of my interviews, and some of this comes up in the book, although I didn't want to make it too heavy-handed, but you know, how has social media changed the way we communicate about music? Certainly, how did the pandemic change how we communicate about going to live shows? The shows weren't showing up on on Facebook the next day. Uh, People weren't, you know, gossiping about what was happening at Speaking Tongues the week before all over the internet. And they might have been doing that, you know, on their own time. Um, But just the way that 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 segment of society, that the communication segment of society operates is so different. I think in trying to explain Speaking Tongues to someone these days, it would be hard not to express the fact that this is a whole different era in, in music. Totally. And, you know, you brought up social media and I saw that there's a Facebook group dedicated. It's called I Miss Speak in Tongues. And people are on there kind of sharing photos and sharing their memories of the space. And um, a website still exists that lists all the bands that played there and has all the flyers. Then, of course, your book. So what is it about this space that's worth um, archiving or like commemorating in this way? 
Um, you know, I think there's something deeply personal about this. This wasn't just like uh, a college apartment. This was an institution, really. And I think for the people who lived there, it was an incredibly important part of their lives that, um, you know, I can look at it from the outside and say, oh, you know, you you were a part of Speaking Tongues and now you're doing this. And I can sort of see how that, that connective tissue works and I can see where you're coming from. Um, but for those people... Um, you know, not to put words in their mouth, but their words are in the book. Uh, it means a lot to them. This was an incredibly formative time of their life. I also think that, as Tony Erba put it in the book, the folks who were living there were kind of laying a lot on the line to be able to create this place every night. Mm-hmm. Not only just in terms of like holding down the fort and kind of keeping it halfway clean and and bringing bands in, but also you know they were kind of, uh, I mean, they were essentially running a business for seven years. Mm-hmm. Most of them were, you know, 17, 18, 20 years old. They're pouring their life into this for, for a number of years. 20 years later, people are still bonding over this. Speaking Tongues isn't like in the headlines very often. And so you just have this community of folks who were there keeping it alive. You know, time just keeps slipping by and we keep moving further and further away from that era of when, when Speaking Tongues was around. And um, I think having... Just, again, a very small little token of that memory out on shelves will hopefully be meaningful and important as, as people, you know, move forward and, and look back at, at where we all came from. That's Eric Sandy, author of Speak in Tongues, an oral history of Cleveland's infamous DIY punk venue. It will be released in July. You can find links and more at ideastream.org shuffle. I'm Brittany Nader, IdeaStream Public Media.